Good morning, everyone. Uh, to those that are new um, and to those that are regulars, glad you're here this morning. Um, hey, look, at I, I want to ask you something. If you were to look back over your life, the things that you find yourself doing week in and week out, what are the patterns that you see yourself continually kind of going back? The, 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 the scheduled activities, the events, the be- behaviors, the things that you wire into your weeks and months that have been there again and again, almost habitually throughout your life. Just think about that for a second. What are the things that you find yourself doing again and again and again? Whether it's subconsciously, it's just you don't even think about it, it just happens. I grew up like Craigery in the church. And so Sunday morning church ritual, it was a big thing. You didn't have to wonder what you were doing Sunday morning. My parents made sure it was happening. I mean, unless there was uh, the odd hockey game, which... You know, I remember at one point in my life, I was praying all hockey would land on Sunday mornings. Uh, You just knew you were going to be in church. Later on, Kathy and I got married, and she introduced me to the ritual of Sunday afternoon family dinners. That was something that was just a part of her family culture. Everyone, sisters, brothers, they all came together. We gather at her parents' place, big dinner. We'd sit around and chat about our weeks maybe watch a movie that afternoon. It just all circled around her family's or her parents' home. That was a, that was a bit of a, an adjustment for me. I always enjoyed my sun, Sunday afternoon golf. And that that kind of went away for a while there. Over the years, certain things we begin, when the kids were young, Kathy enjoyed her time away from the house, so she cooked in some rituals were Tuesday nights and Saturday mornings. Bye-bye, Jeff. You got the boys. I'm going to the gym. I was not allowed to book anything. Tuesday nights, Saturday mornings. Whew, roped off. Well, okay, that's fair. Sunday nights, my night. I'm going out to play hockey. Monday morning, Mondays are typically my day off. I was going to go and golf, do something. And there was no questioning that. I just could do that. Think about your routines and rituals. We, we were a part of a small group for many years, a group of about five couples, and we'd just get together. At one time, it was once a week. We'd just come together over food and great conversation, share our lives together. Many of us raising kids together, and we would holiday together. It was just part of our regular, weekly, or monthly ritual. Over the last little while, I've been asking people about their routines and rituals. It's been interesting what I've learned. Some people, they say, we have been a part of a group of people who have done a monthly supper club for years. Everyone takes turns making dinner, and we all kind of come around. It's just a part of us. Many of us have known each other since junior high school. Wow. You don't, you don't mess with monthly supper club. It's happening. I remember one guy was telling me Monday night football with the boys. Same group of guys he went to high school with. They still every Monday night get together over wings and beer and watch Monday night football. One couple told me they go for a walk every evening after supper. 
It's just what they do. One family sets aside for every Friday night as their games night with their kids. Every Friday night. And they pour energy into that night. Those kids live for Friday nights. Some told me about a reading time. Some told, like, that they just lock off. It's an hour of reading every night, and it's just part of what they do. Some talk about a journaling before bed that they do. It's just something they've always done. Man, on and on. Uh, some couples talk to me about scheduled times for sex that they set aside every week. Multiple times, single times, whatever. They say, that just happens. One person had a ritual of grocery shopping every Saturday morning while her husband had a bunch of other chores he had to do. And then in the afternoon, they go for a matinee movie. What's your rituals? You know, these things, they kind of can just grow. Some people are really natural at them. Some people just kind of stumble on it and all of a sudden they look back and they go, yeah, we've been doing that a long time. These rituals and routines that we can find ourselves engaging in. Now we're learning are actually so valuable for our own well-being. It's interesting, modern science and research that's being done is now confirming what it seems our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors have known for years and years and years. There's something about the ritualed pieces of our lives that act like guardrails, holding us in the groove, helping us stay in this lane that leads us to the most meaningful life possible or imaginable. We've been thinking a lot about it because we've been talking about the meaningful life around here over this last little while. In fact, we've got two more weeks of this series. But it's one thing to talk about the kinds of things that lead to the meaningful life. It's a whole other thing to, to just do those things. Science is saying it won't be willpower that will lead you to the meaningful life. It will likely be the rituals that you choose, that you wire into your life, that will lead you to that place. Leads you to your best, most productive, most vibrant life. So starting in a couple, uh, it will be two Sundays from now, be October 16th. We're beginning the series called In the Groove, and we're going to get you thinking deeply about the rituals and routines that you have allowed into your life. Some of them are yielding incredible value, and you need to keep them there. There are others, maybe not so much. There are maybe some rituals and routines that you need desperately in your life that will change the arc, the trajectory of your life drastically. So I'm going to invite you to come out. Invite your friends It's a series called In the Groove. And I'm telling you, what we're hoping is that we're going to start building some guardrails to keep us in the lane, moving toward this kind of thing that we're talking about weekly right now, this meaningful life, the life that you were meant to live. You won't want to miss it. All right. That's all I got. Trevor. Good morning, everyone. My name's Trevor. I'm proudly part of the charitable giving team that's going to ask for your money unapologetically. And you know why? I don't know. For you guys, Craig was asking sort of his first time at Friends Church. Can you guys find that moment the first time he came here? 
Do you know, for us, it was Christmas. We came for a Christmas message many years ago. And I remember what Craig was saying, because they had Mr. Bean on for Christmas. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? This isn't right. You can't do church this way. And yet over all these years, it's never changed. We're really comfortable with you where you are. We're comfortable with me bringing my own doubts and not having everything figured out. And yet still, this is a great place to come. So when I say unapologetically, if you feel that way, this is a great cause to support for those reasons. Because we can all come here at different places in our journey, at different spots, be shocked and outraged by the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Mr. Bean at Christmas. We probably need to do that again, actually, Vince, as I think about it. And it's interesting, though, that we can progress and move forward from here. I, I love the band that thought this is home. Because home is a really strong word. And it can be in the most positive sense. And I hope this feels like home to you. And if it does, there's a few ways to donate. I would just encourage you maybe to also think about, as Jeff's talking a little bit about rituals, is this, if it's part of who you are, are you donating in a, in a way that's regular? We always talk about our pre-authorized givers because that just makes it so much easier to budget and make plans. And we really do appreciate that. So if this is home, and we hope it is, then don't donate regularly. And know that, no, the shoe's not going to drop, so that's good. Or, or it's going to surprise me as well, because I'm still waiting for that shoe as well. Have a great morning. Morning, everyone. I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop for me as well. <laughs> I was having uh, coffee with a friend recently. And uh, started the conversation kind of like, I make good money. I work a lot. I have everything I need. I got a big ass house. I got a fancy car. But the tone of voice was kind of this like, uh, the sense was, is this all there is? The question he's asking is, is this all there is to life? When I sit down and I think, you know, my bank account, my stress level, my, you know, whatever heart attack coming along, is this the height of a meaningful life? That's a sobering question, isn't it? And I think there was a question underneath the question. I think what he was asking was, how do I even know? what a meaningful life feels like. Do you know how you'd answer that? When you look through your life and go, okay, what parts were meaningful? How do you pick? Like, okay, that was meaningful, that wasn't. For him, making a ton of money didn't seem that meaningful, but, you know, other things maybe. And it got me asking the question, how do you know the things in your life are meaningful. How, like, how do we even know? Maybe, like, going to work nine to five, you know, being ground up in the, the wheel of work, maybe that's the feeling of meaningful? That's pretty depressing, isn't it? So how do you know the things in your life are meaningful? Now remember, we started this series by saying we're in the pursuit of a meaningful life, but we're not doing it top down. There's this idea in certain traditions that says, you have been created, therefore you have meaning. Top down. 
We went through a different part of our tradition, the part that says, when you look through your life, you're going to have these moments that are going to feel like more. There's going to be a depth and a weight to them. I remember walking up the stairs to my doctor. I don't know why I was going to my doctor, but my phone rings. It's my dad. I said, hey, dad, can I call you right back? He says, no. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. What's up? He says, your mom's got cancer. You guys know me. I swore a lot. I started fundraising for cancer within weeks. I heard about this thing called the Ride to Conquer Cancer. So I sent a message to all my friends saying, my mom just got diagnosed. Her cancer's terminal. I don't know what the hell to do, so... The day of the cancer ride, I have a picture of it. There's, this isn't actually us, but there's about a thousand bikers all in spandex. I call it full sausage because we looked like sausages. Remember that? <laughs> pointing at one of the guys who was with us, full sausage. But they have this thing that they start you off. There's a stage MC, and there's a, a blank row down the middle of all these riders. And at one point, they take a bike and they have four people who've all survived cancer. And they take this empty bike and start rolling it down the aisle in between us all. And the MC says, that empty bike represents every person we've lost to cancer. And I'm looking around and, you know, my mom's right there with me. She's not, but, you know, in my head. I'm looking, people have on the back of their jerseys pictures of the people who've died from cancer in their lives with names on them. Yes, it was a thousand people in full sausage looking at an empty bike, but it was so much more than that. Every year, I did it for nine years. Every year, I was like, Clausen, I don't care how sore your ass is at the end of this 200-kilometer ride. You're doing this again next year. You are doing this again next year. Why? That's the feeling we're trying to find. Sometimes it's big as that. Sometimes it's smaller. Jeff talked about this idea a couple weeks ago of we're all dying. Yeah, that's obvious. But we tend to not want to think about it because it's so scary. What if I am dying? Then what will happen? But he said, no, no, no. Use that feeling to focus you back here. We had a lot of death in our family growing up. And so somehow I got this saying in my head that says, if I die tomorrow, am I happy with how I live today? Helps me a lot in fights. You know, you're having a fight with someone and you're all like, screw you, you're going to have to come apologize to me. <laughs> then I have that thing that says, if I die tomorrow, am I happy with how I handle this today? <sighs> Pick up the phone. Call whoever I need to call. this idea that says a meaningful life is held here in the everyday moments 
And some of them feel as big as that empty bike being pushed down between a thousand people in sausage gear. Sometimes that's what it feels like. Sometimes it's small. This whole week I've been asking people, you know, the Ecclesiastes tradition says we, a meaningful life is a life that feels meaningful. So I keep saying to people, what feels meaningful to you? What feels like something more is going on there? Someone told me at work, they deal with affordable housing. They said, hey, you know what, when I do something and I can tweak it towards people who need, really need housing? Talk to somebody. Said, you know what I'm talking about? Instantly they told me the story. They said, look, I'm an immigrant. I came from South America about five years ago. Hardly speak English. My son's young. I'm trying to register him in school. I can't, you know, I go to meet with the principal. I can hardly understand what the heck they're saying. My son doesn't speak English at all, and I'm going, this is not going to go well. She said, just a couple weeks ago, in my condo, I saw a mother and a young son walk by me, and I overheard them speaking South American Spanish. And she answered in Spanish. And the little kid who knows nobody, who can't speak English, whips his head around like, She said, you guys ever need help, call me. I live right there. That's my house. That's my car. If my car's there, I'm there. A couple days later, knock, knock. The mother, who was my friend five years ago, says, will you come with me to sit with the principal to arrange the first year of my kid's schooling? You speak English. Will you help me? You could tell she was like, (sighs) that sitting there with that mother, helping her through that part of her life, she's like that, (laughs) took the cake. What feels meaningful to you? Career, moment, I was sitting with my counselor one time. Remember I talked a couple weeks about islands and waves? Jeff and I have talked about it throughout the years. It's this idea that says when you were born and when you grew up, how you were parented against your nervous system is still stuck in there somehow. And some of us have some hinky wiring down there. It means we react kind of poorly. They kind of this, we call them islands and waves. I tend towards the island side, which means we kind of pull away, not very emotional. My counselor looks me in the eye and says, oh Vince, what you don't realize is islands normalize neglect. Islands assume that no one in the world is gonna take care of them. They always have to take care of themselves. And suddenly, Do you know the moment where someone says something and it's like your entire life just got rejigged and you suddenly understood a million stupid things you've done in your life? Like I'm literally sitting there shaking my head like as my brain's rejigging everything going, holy crap. Meaningful moments? What are yours? What are the moments where you go through your life and something happens, you're going, I will not forget that moment. If I could put my time anywhere, there. 
Jeff talked last week about when we're wired to do something. I was actually at a, a party with Jeff the other day. He's not here, so I can say this. That guy is charming, isn't he? Like, just freaking charming. And he's in there, and there's this old couple sitting between us. He is charming the pants off them. Like, it is insane. The lady is, like, having none of it. She's trying to be all, like, stern and, like... And he's got her, like, to the point where she's, like, trying so hard not to smile. Then she, she's giving the, like, oh... <laughs> Meanwhile, Jeff is going at her. It, she is having a blast. She doesn't even want to admit that she's having a blast. And Jeff is just like, it's like he's this marionette guy that's like playing her like a, like it's insane what he can do. I'm sitting back, not saying a thing because I'm not charming. I'm just watching him going, whew, glad I don't have to do this. I said to Jeff after, like, what was that? He's like, you know what? I love to just make people's day fun. It's who I am. I got woo. Win people over. Literally, this lady is doing everything she can not to have fun. He overcomes it, and by the end, she's laughing. She's having a blast. Jeff, I was like, what are you feeling? He's like, it just feels meaningful when I can do that for a family or a couple. After they invited him over to their house, they wanted to show him everything. They forgot my name. That's how much they appreciated my work. <laughs> Oh, you're Vince. Oh, yeah. Hey, Jeff. (laughs) And Jeff's having a blast using who he is, how he's wired to make someone's life meaningful. Insanely beautiful. We all have things in our lives that we can use to create meaningful moments. For Jeff, it was that. What's the natural wiring that you have You can't help but look at the band, right? As they're singing their hearts out, using what they have. There's another way to get to a meaningful life. We can do it through who we are, but there's another pathway. And this pathway, when you understand it, you realize a lot of the trite sayings make some sense in this world. But to get there, I wanna tell you a bit of a story about a guy named Moses. Anyone remember Moses from the Bible? Depending on what age you are, one of these pictures is going to make the more sense to you. If you're as old as me, the Charlton Heston one makes sense. If you're younger, it's the Prince of Egypt. Moses is the leader of a group of people that are going from Egypt to the Promised Land. Remember a couple weeks we talked about Promised Land? Tall people lived there. Everyone's amygdala was freaking out. They said there were giants. They're going to eat them. Moses is the leader for that whole event. But the people are just a-holes. I don't know how he puts up with these people. Case in point, they're walking through the desert one day. They haven't had anything to eat. So they say to Moses, hey, Moses, we're hungry. Do something about it. So Moses makes it rain bread. It's not a bad little trick, isn't it? You know what they say? Thanks, Moses. That was really great. Two days later, we're kind of sick of bread. You got anything else out there? Can you make it rain anything else? Like, I would just be like, okay, screw you all. I'm done with you. You guys can deal with it yourself. But Moses doesn't. They complain. They whine. They blame. 
And Moses keeps at it. Why? I was reading the stories going, why, why does he put up with this crap? Until I realized something. Does anyone have anyone in their family that's adopted or anyone in the room that's adopted? My wife's adopted, my sister's adopted, my colleague's adopted. And one of the things I know with adopted people is growing up in a family that you're not biologically connected to, it has some challenges. And I knew it because when my wife found her biological family, she has a a mother and two half-sisters, it's hilarious when they're together. They're constantly doing things like, oh, you have my chin, oh, and then they go off about how their chins are the same. And then somebody will like make some joke or say some funny line and everyone's like, I say that too. And then there's some weird medical thing that everyone's like excited because they have the same medical thing and it's kind of like, are we talking about that in public? Feels a little bit awkward. But what they're saying is, we are alike. I think when you're adopted, you know that's your family, but you're not physically the same as them. What would it feel like to not be physically the same as your family? What would that feel like? Moses is adopted. When he's young, the people of Israel were in Egypt. There was more of them than the Egyptians. The Egyptians, in a sense of kind of over-excited nationalism, decided that they needed to cull the Israelite people a little bit. And so they were killing off the children. Brutal. The king calls in the midwife and says, look, if it's a girl, fine. If it's a boy, midwives are like, screw you, whatever. So Moses is born in a time when no boys should have been born. And so for him to be alive as a child is a risk. And so at one point, his mom can't hide him anymore. So she puts him in a little basket, throws him in the river. I'm not sure what her thinking was there, but whatever. She throws him in the river, and an Egyptian princess walks up and goes, oh, look, a baby. I'll adopt him. Moses was raised in the Egyptian court. His people saw him as an Egyptian. You're not one of us. You're an Egyptian. The Egyptians were looking at him going, well, you're not one of us. You're an Israelite. He didn't belong to anyone. What would that feel like? Fast forward. He's now the leader of a people. He has this deep connection to belonging from being adopted. What do you think that does to a leader? When you care so deeply about belonging, do you think you just cut people loose when they annoy you? No. Because of his upbringing, he has a passion. This is my read anyways. You can disagree with me. He has a passion for belonging. And when people come to him and they're annoying, he's going, no, no, no. Belonging trumps your annoyingness. We're family. We have each other's backs. We belong together. 
Could it be that there's a pathway to a meaningful life that comes through all of our experiences of life? Positives, negatives, ups, downs. Could it be that one of the ways to feel these meaningful moments is to look back through your life and go, what moments mattered to me? This message actually started when I got an email. Someone in our community sent me an email and he's been sending it to me for years saying, hey, I'm doing this ride. Will you fund it? My answer is always, of course. But then I realized he's doing exactly what I'm talking about here. He's found a way to create meaningful moments in his life through an experience that's pretty painful. So instead of me telling you, because you guys hear me talk all the time, I wanted to invite him up. So I want you to give a big warm welcome to John Curl. Hey, John. Hello. How's it going, man? Very good. Good. Thanks for coming up and doing this for me. Welcome. Oops. Chair's not going to fall apart? Nope. Perfect. Okay. So let's start with the email that you sent me. What are you fundraising for every year? I fundraise for MS Society, the multiple sclerosis. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. Do you know how much money you've raised? Uh, 70000 Wow. That's incredible. 50000 for sure, but it's... Probably borderline 70000 That's incredible. Now, here's the more important question. Why do you fundraise for MS? Well, back in 2001, my first wife uh, was diagnosed with MS. <sighs> so from that point forward, we started to jump in. There was those, what did we do? What do we do? How can we contribute? So there was the MS walk, which we contributed to and jumped into for three years. and. Okay. Um, some other people said, well, there's this ride, too. You should go on that. So we started doing the riding, and kind of every year it's evolved a little bit more and a little bit more and a little <laughs> bit more and a little longer. Take me back, though. How did this all start? What was the first day that you realized something was wrong? Well, we, um, about the summer of 2001, I noticed my uh, wife at the time was uh, having some difficulty in the afternoon. Her vision would go blurry. Okay. And she had some other pins and needles in her legs and things like that. So she was lining herself up, going to doctor's appointments, things like that. But, to, you know, get into an appointment for a specialist is almost next to impossible. So this doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So one day she's at work um, doing biology type things. And for whatever reason, she had a total... Um, event, I guess. Um, event is euphemism for? She basically um, went into convulsions, passed out, whatever. Wow. They, they hauled her away to the hospital wow. in an ambulance. Okay. And I got a call from work on that. What did it feel like to get that call? Hmm. Well, very, <laughs> very eerie. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, knowing some of these other things in the background are going on, I says, okay, so... Um, I went down to the hospital as quickly as I could and tried to see what's going on, which I got scolded for because I was supposed to go home and look, look after the kids. But, uh, okay. That was between yeah. you and your wife. Yeah. Which priorities you got? Yeah. What did it feel like to see her in the hospital there? Well, that was pretty nerve-wracking because, uh, of 
of course, I'm looking after the kids, so we take the kids. They're 10 and 13 at the time. Okay. And uh, try to get to a point where the doctors have done something, a CAT scan or some other things, and lo and behold, they, they come up and they tell us, oh, we believe your wife has a brain tumor. And as well, she's had some sort of seizure, so we're going to give her these drugs now. And, and so we're, all three of us, the two girls and I, were kind of like shocked. And wow. That was an intern. So and I guess it wasn't uncommon to do an MRI or a, a CAT scan on somebody with MS and find that it looks like a brain tumor. Oh, so they just didn't see quite what they were yeah. supposed to see. right. So, when did you first hear the words MS? Well, the... Uh, there was a different doctor there at the time, and I don't think he used the words MS. He said, well, you can't really say that it's a brain tumor for sure because okay. we have to take a better look with an MRI and things like that. So right. it was, uh, it's just, there's, there's other possibilities, and he probably wasn't breathing the word, but within the week, they did enough diagnostics and did the MRI and scanned her brain and things like that and found that they, they came up with the diagnosis of MS. Do you remember the call when they told you? Um, I guess it was my wife told me or called and okay. said. And so mm, some of it was maybe relief that we know what it is uh, as opposed to a brain tumor. I mean, I guess you're coming down from a high of a brain tumor to MS. <laughs> but, but then, you, you, you know, at that time, I couldn't even spell MS. Or what, <laughs> what is that? Right. What is that? So myself... I'm, I find myself self-diagnosed as ADD and dyslexic and all kinds of things. The number of visions in my mind just go berserk. Wow. And sort of like, you know, okay, so what's that mean, You're right? Um, it was like... What was that first night? So she's in the hospital, she's been rushed to the hospital, they're testing her. What was the first night being home alone? Yeah, that was pretty scary, pretty cold and dark. Mm. Although I had two girls at home, but they... And then trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? What am I doing tomorrow? What, am, yeah. what are we doing now? What's happening the rest of our life? Yeah. That's a, and then do we go to work? Do we go to school? What do we say? Yeah. So that was nerve-wracking, to say the least. As it progressed, so she's diagnosed. She came home again? After the, she was uh, in the hospital, they did all the testing. Did she come home after that? Um, I think after that, she had... Um, an event tough enough that, that uh, disabled one of her legs okay. initially. So, you know, the first week they say, oh, we're going to try to get her into physiotherapy. And you say, okay, physiotherapy, and then come home. Right. And then you think, oh, we're going to do this. Oh, and then come home. No. And it's sort of, they're not really letting on what's going to happen. Right. And you're, you're there, and you're, oh, good, we're doing physiotherapy. And, and so, but it's always, and then she's going to come home, and life's going to get, get yeah, back to normal. Yeah, you think you're going to do something else, and then then you find out after two weeks. It says, "Oh, well, we're working on. Uh, we'll get her into a care facility," and then it says, "Well, how long will that be?" Well, I guess best case scenario might be a few weeks, but likely a couple months. Wow! So suddenly you're going from coming home, dinner's already, kids are going to ready to soccer, do this and that. Now you've got a scenario of go to work, come home, hop in the car, go to the care facility. Well, actually, in that situation, with the kids were still there, it was like manage all the kids' stuff and then go to the care facility every day and then back and try to figure out what else is new, what else is new, now what, now what. So as her illness progressed over the years, what did it look like near the end? 
Well, we, it progressed. Um, she would end up with so many uh, complications due to drugs. She ended up with a seizure conflict. Okay. Um, a lot of the drugs were incompatible with her or, or she would have a reaction to it. So okay. many different events. So a, a big event that would happen, whether it would be brain-related or seizure-related or, or urinary tract and related with uh, sepsis and stuff like that. You'd end up in a hospital or an ICU for a while, and, and so she was home three to four weeks before the next episode or before the infections took over again, and okay. then she'd be back in the hospital for two to three months. So 75% of the time she was in the hospital. Wow. Or in a care facility. And then says, oh, we're going to get home and do all this. And she seemed to be good. And right back. So back again. So yeah. When you first did the first can't, or ride for, or sorry, walk for MS, what was the feeling back then? Um, I guess humbling or, or uh, eye-opening to see how many people had MS. I mean, that was new for me. Right. So to learn that all these people... Uh, tip of the iceberg and and many many people who first have their first diagnosis go participate in the walk it's sort of like a big that's that shows some uh, public perception and what's going on right right and some something so it becomes a a big show event and everybody goes on many of the people with ms walk three kilometers and if they can do five they do the five you said some people even walkers and like oh yeah that would be as, as you know, if they can do it, or in wheelchairs, right? That might have been our probably our second year. Might okay. have been the third year. Um, we went off, and and the kids and I actually completed. At that time, they actually had a 10k loop, which okay. there was nobody out there. It was like, <laughs> why are we out here? And nobody even knows what we're doing. So now, 20 years later, your wife's passed away mm -hmm. from complications of MS, right? And you still keep riding, right? What keeps you going back? Mm. <laughs> well, I would say a sense of duty. Yes, there's a lot of it. Um, she worked at trying to beat it for 12 years, so I guess I could try to continue the torch. <laughs> you got me too. <laughs> See, I knew it happened eventually. Uh, yeah, so that, and, you know, a portion of it is uh, our own morality is my kids, right? Hmm. I says, is it hereditary? I says, well, not really, but. Just you know, in case. <laughs> just in case. That's, that's useful. And yeah. then, and then they, you look around at all the. Uh, the stats, you know, we went through a lot of classes and how many people were infected or affected with MSS. It's a lot of people and it's continually happening. When Part of it, we, we live on our own street. Mm. Lady down the street, um, slightly younger than us. Okay. She actually had it before my wife did. Wow. And she's, uh, I think, progressing to the point where she probably won't make it around the block with her dog. <sighs> Does it feel meaningful to do this? Yeah, I think so. It, uh, uh, I find it beneficial that, that once I had the steamroller going and, and uh, 
the number of people that contribute to allow me to to make it to 5,000 or up to 7,000 a year, that spurs me on. And we got a, a group from work, my previous job, this was unbeknownst to me, that they had a little team of 10 to 20 people, and it grew to 50 at one time, wow. all with the same jerseys, all okay. dedicated to try Love to it. put some money into the coffers and, yeah. and uh, make it there. So it, that's, that helps to be uh, team-orientated, and mm. that's... Keep you motivated. Keep, keep the team going. <laughs> we probably have a core of 10 of us that, that okay, still keep going. it going. Well, let me say on behalf of everyone who has MS or has been touched by MS, I just want to say thank you. What you're doing feels meaningful to me. Even being the part of it in the way I, I just donate money, mm. it feels meaningful to me. So thank you. And okay. thanks for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Your wife gets diagnosed with MS, and you turn that into an experience of meaning. And then you roll that over to the next year. And then you do it for 20 years. A pathway to meaning is to find those things in our lives that have an emotional energy to them. His wife gets diagnosed with MS, it's like, Those are the moments that we can use to create meaningful moments in our lives. This is the, you know, the trite line, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm not sure I'm buying that, but I will say this. The moments that are the most painful in your life often are a beautiful pathway into meaning. And let me show you how it works. Somebody who's gay, who was part of the church and gets kicked out, now can help other people who are gay find presence in the church. The very thing that hurt them now creates this meaningful ministry where they're going, no, 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 everybody is welcome. You grow up with really bad attachment issues. So you talk to everyone you can about being islands and waves. Because helping people find health is meaningful. People who have, <laughs> you have bad experiences with relationships, you have issues with health and physicality, whatever it is your thing is, if it's got emotional kind of energy to it, you can use it to tie in and find something that's meaningful. If your kid grew up with some sort of illness and then you can help other people navigate that illness, the pathway is what was difficult in your life, what feels emotional, even some of your trauma, you can actually turn it in to a pathway to a meaningful life. Moses adopted this struggle to belong, now uses this to fire his leadership to bring an entire group of people to safety. That's not bad. So what experiences in your life can you look back and go, wow, that, that was tough, or oof, that one's still with me. How do you turn that into moments of meaning? Is there a ride you can do to honor the partner that you lost, to inspire the world around you, to just raise funds just in case your kids get it, even though it's not hereditary, whatever, who cares? This isn't logical. What is the thing in your life 
the passion, the thing that has emotional energy that you can tie in and reconnect to now. Volunteerism, learning, teach classes, you name it. But that's how we take the moments of pain in our lives and translate those into a meaningful life. Because we use what we experienced as motivation to do beautiful things. Now some of us are going, okay, yeah, but what do I do? Take a look around. I was talking with my coach, Jerry. If you don't know Jerry, a couple years ago they put him on an operating room table, cut him in half, folded him in half, pulled out his lungs, stuffed in a new set of lungs, folded him back up, sewed him back up, and he's walking and talking. Everybody see the guy, I'm like, how are you not dead? I don't understand this. He wears a little pendant around his neck that's got two lungs. So when people ask him, he can tell them the story. He reaches out to a group of people who are all uh, lung transplant people. Reaches out to them, checks in on them. Some of them are like, that one dude, has he ever gotten out of the hospital? Have you ever talked to you? He's like, <laughs> he's in the hospital. Years. Jared reaches out to him. Why? Because he knows the pain of that journey. What's your journey? How do you tie it into experiences now that are meaningful? For me, cancer. Lost too many people in my family to cancer. Attachment. And a sense of spirituality that you can come and ask your questions and doubt and be as unique as you are. Wounds from my past that I try to use to make the world a better place. What's yours? If you don't know what it is, if your brain's going tilt, like, I don't know, I had this experience, I don't know what to do with it. Call me, email me, Vince at Friend Church. I'll walk you through. We'll come up with some way to, to connect that to something more. If you want a life of meaning, and not one of those lives where when you're in your deathbed, you look back and go, there's that one time where I did that one good thing, you know, when I was 20. No, I want a life of more. I want a life where I can look back and go, every day was full of something meaningful. And I want that for you too. Be who you are. That was last week. This week, use the things that were painful, the things that have emotional energy to do something meaningful. Have a meaningful day. Be deliberate. Don't just walk into it. Don't just roll into it. Find something that matters. And we'll see you next week. Have a great week, everybody.